I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's guest is Nicholas Craig. He's Den Dennis. He's Neil Pye. He's a writer, a comedic actor, a musician, and a national treasure. It's Nigel Planer. I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chun. Hey everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello everybody, this is Francis Dunnery from It Bites. Hi everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi everyone, this is Charlene. Hi, this is Dennis Seaton from Years of Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And now... Welcome your host, The Face for Radio Burgess. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 80s Rewind Show with me, Rob, The Face Radio Burgess. Today's guest is someone I've wanted to get on the show for so long. It's just an absolute pleasure to talk to this man. If you haven't yet, please like and subscribe and check out all the other content on the channel and share this episode as much as you can because it's absolutely brilliant. Bit of a backstory. Uh, me and Nigel were trying to chat online for a few weeks and we tried it a couple of weeks ago and the internet wasn't kind to us. And we tried it again and the internet wasn't kind to us again this time. So unfortunately, I've got half the interview online and half of it I had to phone him up and we finished the interview on the phone. So the audio is going to change just in case you come in a little bit later and wonder what's happened to the audio. He's a lovely man. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. And we talk about his new book, which has just been released, Jeremiah Born in Time. There's a link in the description to that below. Everything we talk about in today's episode, there's a link below to find out more about Nigel and the projects he's been doing. I hope you enjoy it. Talking to this man was like a dream come true for me. I've been such a fan since I was a kid. And they say, don't meet your heroes. That's nonsense. I met him and he was amazing. Anyway, on with the episode. The 80s Rewind Show podcast where the past meets the present. Was there a lot of music in your house when you were growing up? I had actually had a, um, a massive radio, a big radio. So this, he, with, a, with a very long area, he used to lie in bed night, trying to reach odd radio stations further and further east. He would Hungarian music, Romanian music. So we had these strange time sequences. And whenever he went abroad, he used to go to, to Germany and also to Eastern Europe on, on, for his work come back with albums and I've still got some of really strange like Russian music and it was quite eclectic but I sing all the all the songs I didn't know what they were you know because it's all a language you don't know um so listening to that and then with the advent of the Beatles and the Stones really it all stepped up a stepped up a notch and my uh, my younger brother was was more into the Stones than me, and and more rock. And I I sort of by the time I was to be a teenager, um, soft machine. I remember I was more into sort of jazz, uh, jazz sound, metal sounds, as it were, and acoustic. Uh, we, we used to my younger brother and I were big fans of the incredible string band and we bought their albums as they came out it's quite an exciting time to think i can remember the day just after the Goldie mitchell's blue came out 
and we bought, you know, we bought that album and listened to that and learned all the tracks. Mob learn guitar. He taught me a couple of them. I could, I can remember most words and most things and sing them. I could find I've got, I've got most of the cellular song somewhere in my head from Hangman's Beautiful Daughter from the Incredible String Band. I believe, given a minute, I could probably give you the whole 11 minutes of that. <laughs> um, and remember all the lyrics. Lyrics get sort of buried in your, in your subconscious without you even knowing they're there. Dad played violin to a very high standard. By the time I was, you know, a child, he'd stopped playing. And my mum had been a pianist, but she'd also given up. So we never heard them play. It's a shame because they both played uh, to a high standard. And is this where your, your guitar playing came from originally, where you got interested in acoustic? Was your, your brother, was it? Um, no, actually, I, I beat him to an acoustic because I was very taken with, and I can't remember why, I think I watched some on telly or, or maybe somebody, grandparents sent a postcard of Spanish dancing, flamenco, which I thought was incredibly exciting. And my dad got uh, quite enthusiastic because, as I said, he liked Fado, he liked Portuguese Fado, he liked, he liked uh, quite a wide range of moody kind of music. And so my interest in that uh, stimulated him, and he took me out to a guitar shop. I still smell the the PVC plastic of the case. It's such a strong smell, you know that. New, new, it's probably against the law now. Really strong plastic uh, smell. And he bought me, and it cost seventeen quid, which at time, I mean, I'm seventy now. So at the time, seventeen quid was a lot of money um and he bought this erste guitar made by the tatai brothers which is a reasonably well-known brand as far as i know i think them now um and i and, and i went to some classes flamenco guitar classes after school i didn't last long and i was uh, really upset to tell them because i felt so special this is amazing i've got a Flamenco guitar, fantastic. But I was very upset. I couldn't, I just didn't have the application to sort of learn properly. And so I stopped. And then shortly afterwards, by now I must be, I don't know, 12, something like that, I found in the local music shop, we used to go in there and look at all greedily at all the guitars in there and chords and taught myself off that. Things like On Top of Old Smokey, all covered in snow, I lost my ball when somebody sneezed. Those sort of songs, country songs. And then once I'd learned a few chords, I started making up songs. And then my brother followed the Incredible String Band, and he got a guitar, and he could actually play it properly. But usually for me, it was very impatient, as little as I could, in order to be able to sing and make up songs and write lyrics and... Uh, whereas he actually had the, the, the musical skill. At one point, he went to the Purcell School, I think, which is like a, you could have been pretty good musician. I don't think he went there for long. And he was composing, and we wrote songs together, and I wrote a load of sort of stoned-out psychedelic folk songs. This is by now, I'm talking 17, 
18, 19 years old. So he would have been 12, 13, he's about four years younger. And I wrote a lot and I used to, that's all that mattered to me. And I wrote, I wrote quite a lot of what's now called psychedelic folk song. And during the lockdown, 50 years later, no, even almost 60 years later, I, cause I haven't, I didn't play guitar much in the interim. I picked up this old beaten up guitar that you have to hold together with it to, to keep it together. And I remembered all these chords and I found I remembered almost all the lyrics and I dug out old files and I found about 10 of them were actually just about presentable songs if I'd practiced them up. And so that's what I was doing during lockdown. I was recording them on this crappy old guitar with a guy called Chris Wade. He, he lives in Leeds and he plays everything and sings and writes songs of albums called Dodson and Fog. And he makes sort of art films and everything. He's a sort of one man band. And I remember how I met him. I think I, I did a voiceover for one of his films or something. Anyway, he knew all this music that he's much younger than me, but he knew all the music we'd been listening to when we were young. And we did a version with my brother of something called The Mean Meanwhile, which we made very psychedelic. My brother, Rog, did some really things that sort of triggered re-freaks in us all. That went out, people, people liked that. But then after that, I thought, let's just cut it back to what it originally sounded like, which was a me acoustic guitar and singing, get some harmonies. Chris, away, he started to add acoustic beautiful acoustic breaks in the middle and then and we sort of grew it from there and we put that out on the band camper it's a project uh called five five songs left after the nick drake five leaves left which is another thing we got the week it came out that was a that was a big deal when that comes out nowadays you know it in an instant you can google it can't you but i can't really remember how did I get to know Nick Drake was that there was an album called Five Leaves Left? Where did the information flow? That's what, because it did, it must have. So maybe it was the local music shop that you used to hang around like the, like a toy shop or a model shop or something when you were a kid and you used to just hang around there and the guy get really pissed off because you'd just be trying out the guitars and not buying anything, you know, for hours. I don't remember a local record shop or maybe it was just mates. What was it in the newspapers? Did we look? I can't remember. Would you have had NME back then as well? Yeah, yeah. There was NME. There was Melody Maker. Uh, Smash Hits is later. Um, NME. Yes, maybe that's what a, a Rolling Stone. And there was It magazine as well. It International Times, which was a, a very alternative one, and and indeed Oz magazine. So maybe information was of, of sort of subculture counterculture stuff the 80s rewind show podcast where the past meets the present so were you ever planning on becoming a musician or was you interested in doing something else at the time there was a brief period yeah when i was writing those songs we met up with this bloke called tony who was australian i think or south african australian australians and he kept saying ah super super so we used to call him super tony um, and he was like a, a music agent or plugger, promoter. 
And he took us round, me and my brother again. We went round to EMI, uh, I don't know, a few record companies. And in those days, of course, it wasn't, you didn't have, you couldn't just click a button and say, here's my demo. Uh, you'd, you'd take a cassette with you, which you'd sellotape to your name on the front of, and then they'd say, okay, show us what you've got. And you'd sit in these executives' uh, uh, rooms and get out your guitars and sing and play with Super Tony in the background. And he, he kept trying to make us write more commercial songs. And I couldn't take that seriously. So it was like kind of, there was one lyric, you know, you're trying to think, oh, now what would be, oh, you know, what, what do people want? You know, love songs and waking beside you. Your shape across the bed. I suppose that's like shape of you, isn't it? Mm. Um, even though I rise and leave you there asleep, I'll still be thinking of you as I eat my shredded wheat. <laughs> it's, it's, I just couldn't sort of take it seriously. So we never, we never did make a hit single. We did, my, my brother then wrote, uh, songs and we did much later have a, have an actual single again actually with EMI Records and with a band called the Marshall Hain Band I don't know if you remember them I do they yeah. did a song called Dancing in the City Al is that we run to that one anyway that was uh, Julian Marshall and Kit Hain and we did a we did a single called Piping Pool and we made ourselves into a little unit called Pam and the Paperclips. <laughs> and the B-side was called Dear Katie about an agony aunt. Um, and, and the A-side was, was about a, a girl, Pam, singing that she was stuck in a typing pool. Um, which is a place, by the way, for those who are under the age of 50, where typists all used to go and type um, for a company. You know, a company would have its, a typing pool where all the typists, all the secretaries would have to just sit in rows typing all day long. So, of course, the song had loads of chink, 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 ding, chink, 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 ding in it the sound of typewriters, again, for people under 50, that's the sound of a typewriter. So this is kind of historic stuff, really, isn't it? Bloody hell. It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's obsolete now is what it is, really, unless you do a phone thing, isn't it? Phone pools or whatever. So were yeah, you, yeah. Were you taking around the um, sort of the Four More Songs EP at this point? Is this the one you were trying to sell to the record companies? Yes, I think we were, some of them. Not so much the, the, the sort of freakier ones that are the, the, the ones that obviously now are the ones I've chosen to go on there. There were, there were ones trying to be more, uh, you know, acceptable for mainstream audiences, which is ridiculous, you know, trying to write to order. I, it's ridiculous if you're no good at it. <laughs> it's really good if you're brilliant at it. Were you sort of interested in comedy at this point as well or were you, was it just one of those things where a bit like um, Billy Connolly where he would tell jokes between the songs to make people laugh was there sort of characters or jokes you were doing at this time no it was more uh, I took it very seriously all the uh, writing the music I, I thought I was 
you know, sort of the new Donovan or something. Um, and but I had always been uh, interested in acting, and the, my sort of connection with the comedy came about through acting. In that I'd always been in plays, amateurs at school, semi-pro. Uh, my first job was I was how old was I? Nineteen. Up at the Travers Theatre in Edinburgh, and I was I would get laughs in characters. But at this short period where I thought I was going to become John Martin or, or, or whoever. Um, that wasn't a that wasn't a comedy period. That was all these took these songs very seriously, and that's what's quite nice on the Van Camp channel I've got now with five songs left. If you if you go back and listen to them, they're all really innocent and uh, naive, and and they you know they're serious, but they're not sort of ponderous. There's a sort of whenever it was nineteen. 71 or something, you know, there's, there's a sort of complete uh, naivety about everything really in them. And so they, they come across as quite fresh in a way. I was surprised during lockdown when we were recording them. But they, they were so sweet, you know. And then, yeah, anyway, anyway, yeah, it was good, good fun doing that. But uh, the reality, just sort of autobiographically, reality soon kicked in. And all innocence was lost, and um, I ended up taking the piss. <laughs> that's fantastic. We'll, we'll jump forward a bit if that's all right. So obviously Neil's around and Neil's created, and the young ones comes out and explodes, and it's a cultural phenomenon, and it's amazing, and it's my favourite TV show of all time. I'm just curious to ask you. Um, obviously Neil played guitar and sung during the episodes. Why was there never a song from Neil in the actual episodes? You had all these great bands and Alexi did Dr. Martin's Boots. How comes like Neil never did or performed a song? Was that an option that ever came up? No, it wasn't. It, it, and I wasn't pushing for it. But also, I think that there was a sort of, I think there was and possibly still is a pecking order, a sort of honour roll on which I, on the food chain of who gets to make decisions in which I was quite low. Because if you think about it, Ben Elton uh, was writing the scripts with Rick Mayle and Lisa Mayer. And Adrian was Rick Mayle's double act partner. And Alexi was the big star who, who got, you know, at the time he was the kind of cool guy um, who got the additional material credit for writing, you know, his monologues when he suddenly talks to camera. And I think... It wasn't considered that um, that I would uh, that Neil should have a song. I, thinking back on it as well, I think that's a bit unfair what I've just said as well because I don't think it would have been right because the four students are crap. That's that's what defines them. They're really crap. It's okay for Alexi Sale because he was the landlord to come in and have a band and have a number and all the other bands obviously. But if one of us had suddenly being competent at anything, I don't think it would have worked comedy-wise, you know, it, it, actually. So I think, I think it's probably not so much about pecking orders and my own personal chip on my own personal shoulder. 
but um, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have seemed appropriate. Yeah, it's, it's a character thing, isn't it, rather than a... Yeah. I mean, and when we did do Hole in My Shoe, we found that if I sung it totally in character, it sounded crap. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to listen to a whole record of somebody being that crap. Um, whereas if I sang it really well, again, it didn't sound like Neil. So we, we worked quite hard to get somewhere between. So you're still aware of it being this character and that he's, that he's who he is, you know, a bit crap. And yet he can basically deliver this song. And it, it was, you know, comedy and music fight each other. Um, they they don't then they don't sit easily together, because if something becomes really good musically, the 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 comedy goes out of it, and and vice versa. If something gets really really funny, the music suffers. It's quite difficult to to, to really get the balance right. I mean, there's things like Adrian's. Even gig with them, his favourite band, the, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, they got the balance right by being nutty, you know, by being crazy. But it, the moment you just go for the laughs, the music doesn't doesn't work. You know, so they fight each other for attention for the for the listeners' attention, and also you don't want to hear the same comedy routine again and again. Whereas a song. You want to hear the same song again and again. It brings back the same feeling. Can we just talk about Neil's heavy concept album? Like, how did it come about? Was you approached or did you approach someone with an idea for it? Because I know Dave Stewart produced it, didn't he? So did Dave come to you? or? Yeah, it, Dave Stewart produced the single too. Right. Um, so what happened was we, uh, a, a mate of mine, Alan McGowan, who was a, a, a music booker, he booked a comedy and music club in Brighton called the Wits End. He had the idea. He said, you should be doing a single as Neil. Why don't you do Hole in My Shoe? Which was a damn good idea. And we toyed with the idea of doing it with Marillion, who I was supporting at some of their gigs at the time. And for some reason that fell through. I can't remember why. And then I can't equally remember who it was who suggested Dave Stewart. I think Dave Stewart got to hear that we were doing it and he was keen. I think that's what happened. He got to hear that I was looking around for someone. So I went to meet him and that clicked immediately. This is not Dave Stewart of the Arrhythmics, by the way. This is Dave Stewart of Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. And so we went to Spacewood Studio in Cambridge and, and made the single. And then it was such a big hit that we and the record company thought, well, let's make a Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An album. And the record company wanted a second single, and they insisted on it being white, My White Bicycle, which I never liked that one as much as I, I felt we should have done something more like Ichiku Park as a second single. I think Neil doing Ichiku Park would have been really funny and really nice to listen to as well, you know, it would have been good. But anyway, uh, so we did the album and I got to choose what went on the album. So instead of it, everybody said, oh, you should do, why don't you just do covers of famous songs, you know, uh, pop songs like Ichiku Park and Mellow Yellow and, you know, just get on with it, uh, sort of thing. But being uh, obstreperous, but also being wanting to make something, I don't know, I didn't think that would necessarily work for the comedy so well. So I chose a number from Caravan, which I think would really suit Neil, Golf Girl. And I chose a number from Incredible String Band. Oh, uh, EU, there's absolutely no strife. Living the timeless life, that one. Amoeba song, that's what that one's called, the Amoeba song. And we chose, I mean, between us, we chose quite a lot of strange, I think it's quite strange what's on there. There's an absolutely beautiful version of Hurdy Gurdy Man, Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Man on there, where Dave Stewart pulled out all the production stops. It's absolutely trippy, it's brilliant. And then at the very sort of, the moment you're most, based on it, Neil's voice comes in, but it's a very pure, nice voice. It's not it's not ruined by the comedy in this instance. Neil's voice comes in, you know, thrown like a star of my eyes, sleep I open my eyes to take a peek. And it's it's a lovely version of that. And I, I, I think it's that album has stood the test of time. It's not just a bunch of hits exploiting the fact that we had a popular summer hit on Radio 1. You know, it, it's, um, it's actually quite an interesting album now. And the musicians on it, I later discovered, are, are amazing. We had half the Canterbury scene, I think, we had on that album. And we had Jacko, Jacko Jack Six playing on that album, um, who, who is currently the lead guitar singer from King Crimson. We had Rick Bidolph playing, who's the bass player from a band called Spira Gyra. We had an amazing heavy metal drummer on Lentil Nightmare. Boris and Graham. That's the guy. And Gavin Harrison, Pip Pyle, Jacko. Yeah, oh, Pyle, yeah, yeah. It's a collective piece now, that album, I think, because it's, and they re released it on CD about five years ago, I think. Can't remember the label it's on. It, it's an amazing album when you listen to it because it does. It, it takes you on a journey for a start. Like you say, the music's brilliant. It's really funny as well. Um, like Lentil Nightmare could be on a Black Sabbath album, to be honest with you. And then you covered yeah. and you covered The Gnome by Sid Barrett and did a brilliant version of that. Oh, that's right. The Gnome, yeah. 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 And then when you listen to Floating, which is right at the end of it, that could be on David Bowie's Low album. It wouldn't have been missing from that. <laughs> well, that's really good of you to say. 
because <laughs> it's got that sort of ambient sort of you know Eno phase seventy seven period about yeah. it, and uh, it's just a yeah. really uh, it's an interesting album because you really mix the comedy with the music and even things like holding my shoe and you sort of say you know standing on their shoulders and you shout fascist and all that sort of stuff is it, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant and it just works what was it like performing sort of say like Hole in My Shoe live on top of the pops were you comfortable doing that or was it something you, you wasn't sure about yeah no, I was I was really comfortable doing that it was important to you know I don't know if you remember on top of the pops they used to do this same camera shot which comes around from behind you on a tracking shot and then curves around and then goes into the sort of mid shot on the singer at the front and they'd start the other side, and they'd curve round, and then, and if there was a guitar solo, lead guitar solo, they'd be sure to do a close-up of the bass player's fingers. Um, or if there was a piano solo, they'd show the drummer. You, you know what I mean? The, the, the camera work was not exactly like old grey whistle test or a, you know, like a music, like a proper music thing. It was more for the kids and the, the, uh, the event, you know, the DJs and the people in the studio all doing their jive. And um, so it was important. So I wrote, a, I wrote out a sort of camera script because if you're going to do a joke, comedy versus music again, if you're going to do a joke, you've got to make sure the camera's on you at the punchline of the joke or people won't know what the hell you're doing. So you have to, you have to give them a camera rehearsal to say, look, don't be round behind me or don't be on the guitarist when I hit myself in the face with a, with the, with the microphone, you know, cause that's, um, that, cause that's what's going to knock me over. And if you don't see that, you won't, the audience won't know why I fell over and knocked over all the plants. <laughs> um, it was quite technically like any comedy. It's actually much more technical than people realize. It's not just, Let's all go out there and be funny. You have to work it out. You know, it's got to be, you've, you've got to technically know what's going to happen and when and where you're going to pick it up on camera, where you're going to be elsewhere, or you give the punchline away, or you miss the punchline, you know, etc. So Top of the Pops was a lot more technical than maybe it looked because it looks like a complete mess. <laughs> yeah. But that's the, in, that was the idea that to make it, you know, this is Neil trying to do top of the pops and he hates it. <laughs> and, and so the idea was to make it look like a total mayhem. Um, but to achieve that, you, you, you know, you have to, you have to have it scripted. You have to have it, you have to know what you're doing. It has to be tight. Yeah. And then, um, after that, you went on to do a comic relief with Cliff Richard. What was that experience like? Did he know what The Young Ones was? Did he have no idea? Was he a fan? Or? Do you know, I don't know if he knew what we were. I, I don't know. I wonder, I always think if he had known what we were, would he have agreed to do it? <laughs> <laughs> he was all right, though. I mean, we did, we did the recording. And I mean, then again, that's great for us because there was some nice voice on The Living Doll single so the four of us could be just crap and sing badly you know because we had Cliff's voice singing the tunes and it's got that wonderful gag isn't it when they pull back the flat and reveal Hank Marvin on guitar in the video fantastic and then he played live with us as well oh he did yeah at the comic relief 
in the theatre. He did it live. That's really cool. Yeah, it's amazing. That's, I mean, what a treat to be pretending to be pop stars for a year or so, you know, without having to take the consequences. That's it. And raising a lot of money for charity in the meantime as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we were the first comic relief single. I mean, I think we were the first thing Comic Relief ever did, that single. That's what formed Comic Relief. And then running parallel to your Neil career, you've got Den Dennis from Bad News. Yeah. I love Den Dennis. What was it like actually getting to be able to play guitar properly and being a different character? Was it an easy transition from Neil to Den? Well, I wouldn't know what it was like being, you know, playing the guitar properly. Right. Because that's something I've never managed to achieve. <laughs> but, um, no, it's just a different character. It's a different character. And so that's where my work mostly comes from. And so I played then the way he would play, you know. I did have a lot more chords. You know, I got a lot of jazz chords, which obviously I had to ignore. I did write one song for Bad News called Axagram. <laughs> Axagram, half bike, half axe, half man. <laughs> Um, but it's quite complicated. Um, and so we learnt it, but it was too complicated. It didn't, again, it didn't work for the characters. It was more like a sort of prog rock heavy metal, but there were quite complicated changes and chords in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And we did learn it and we played it when we were rehearsing. And I think it was Brian encouraged us to drop it because we, we didn't sound good enough doing that. A and B, even if we had, it wouldn't have been bad news. But I'm working with some guys at the moment to do a new version of it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And we're discussing the same old issues. Should we get a kind of Den Dennis vocal on it? In which case, why does it, you know, it'll sound crap. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get a proper vocal on it? In which case, it won't sound very bad newsy. And where do we where do we hit the spot? When I've done it, I'm going to tentatively play it to Adrian Edmondson and see if he'll join in. I'm just doing it with some mates at the moment, so I've got it. I'm trying to get it as good as I can so that he feels inclined because he doesn't want to sort of go back there. But I'm going to try and persuade him to do the vocal and the lead guitar. That'd be brilliant. You um. You played two gigs, is it two you did? Um, and you've put one of them on your YouTube channel, which is amazing. What was it like playing live in front of a crowd as Den, a character, and then trying to remember songs? Was it was it frightening? Was it fun? Was it exhilarating? It was It was all of those things, yeah, especially at uh, Donington and Reading. Donington particularly, because that was our first gig, and there's about, I don't know how many, 50,000 people there all throwing things at you. It, it's ridiculous. And it's in the film, the Bad News film. It's, um, it's it's scary, exhilarating, and amazing. Yeah, as I said, what a kind of strange trajectory to you know. I went to acting school in the states. You know, um, what a strange trajectory to be playing characters that the characters take over so much that you end up actually playing top of the pops and Donington and. You know, the characters end up playing Castle Donington or or Top of the Pops or, you know, going on television interview shows in characters. Boy, amazing, really. 
to be able to do that without, as I say, taking the consequences, the real life consequences, because it's the character that's done it. I mean, you even did um, MTV, didn't you? You took over MTV as Neil for an evening. Is that right? That's right. Uh, there's an MTV. I've got a I've got a Patreon account at the moment. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like three pounds a month, and I'm gradually putting up onto the Patreon account every week. I'm putting up because I found my old archive and I've got it all digitised. Fantastic. And I've got all that Neil MTV. This week, I'm putting up that comic relief live with Cliff thing. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just everything that I've that I found in my old archive is going up there. Awesome. I'll put a link to that um, in the description so people can find it. Oh, well. yeah, do, do. I'll do that as well. It's, it's, I'll try to keep it a cheap one. It's about 30, not 30, it's about £3 a month is what a subscriber has to pay, but you gradually building up into quite a massive library of stuff. And there's lots of it that's never been seen. That's my personal, like, there's Neil stuff that's never been seen, lots of it. I mean, it's all wonderful. Between your Patreon and your YouTube and your Facebook page, there's so much stuff for fans like myself and um, people just love the young ones and bad news and your career. And so much stuff is coming out now. It's wonderful. It's a bit like when Queen release a box set. <laughs> you're getting this archive stuff which you've never seen. It's brilliant. Like Me personally, I'm so pleased you're doing it because we're seeing so much stuff now. It's amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you for that because it's a, it's a pain in the ass to do. <laughs> um, plus also... The Facebook, I don't do Facebook. I've got a guy called Ben Hill who, who runs that Facebook page. They're, he's got a, he runs a, a bad news fan club, as it were. And he's a muso himself as well. And he runs that page. I mean, with me, we're in communication all the time. I can't work out Facebook. I don't really like Facebook. So he, He's looking after that bit of it. I look after the Patreon one. Um, and the YouTube, again, I find it really hard to work, but it, there's a lot of Nicholas Craig stuff on there, which is the actor character I do on the on the YouTube channel. And there's some films I made with my son. Strange little quirky, uh, sort of rather dark. There's three quite dark little stories, short you know, five-minute films, whatever. And I've made with my son on there too. And there's also lots of um, trailers for my book that's coming out next week. Let's talk about your book. I was going to build up to that. We've got, you've, you've, you've written nine books so far. I think it's nine. Is that right? And this is your newest Have book. I really got? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, Jeremiah Born in Time, book one. So is there going to be a trilogy series of this? There is uh, meant to be. I haven't written book two yet, but I've got it all planned out. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a time travel story, but time travel with a difference. It's uh, the way people travel in the, in the in the future. The way that it works is through. You know how if you, well, birds fly south. How do they know how to do that? Or if you separate a bird from it parents and just bring it up separately from all other birds. The moment you let it out to a tree, it will know how to build its perfect nest. It knows what to do. How does it know what to do? Uh, beavers are the same. 
I saw a little video the other day. Beavers start to build a dam, even if they've never been near a dam. They know how to do it. So it's an inherited memory, something that's called morphic resonance, like a resonance through why do things behave the way they behave. So I'm taking that idea just a little bit further to say, well, the past is with us and we can inherit memories of things that never happened to us, that happened to other people. We can, it's a collective inherited memory. So that's, my, that's the bit that excites me. Um, the actual story is, it's a comedy book. It's like a Terry Pratchett or a Blackadder story. It's about a guy who lives in southeast London near where I live. And he accidentally goes back to 1910 and meets a very strange bunch of characters, eugenicists, sort of evil plot, and there's uh, some crazy, funny nudist characters he meets as well, and he has to try and work out why the hell he can do this thing. And I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but uh, there's people from the future who 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 are who are fully aware that he can do this thing and they're trying to catch him and stop him because that's how they all go around uh, using inherited memory. But it's all, But the difference is it's not like Doctor Who traveling in time and space. It's only traveling in time. So you end up in this place where you are. You know that feeling you're walking along the street and you see an old lamppost, you see something from the past and you're sort of almost transported your imagination to the past. It's more like that. You you find yourself actually in the past in this in this book using a memory you didn't know you had. So, uh, but as I say, that, that's all the bits that excite me. Those are my excitements. Actually, it's it's uh, it's funny. There's lots there's lots of silliness in it, you know. How many books are you sort of aiming for? Like three, or is it going to be like a ten book trilogy? Oh well, who knows? I mean, I'll do the second, and if that goes well, I'll um, I'll plan and do the third. I've only got a very vague idea of the third one, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, no idea how popular. It would be. There's another character in it. There's Jeremiah Bourne, who's this main character, and his mum, who left him years ago, and he doesn't know where she is. He's trying to find her. And, but then there's his auntie, Artemisia Plutarch, who is from the future. And that character turned out to be quite a lot of fun to write. So I might start, I don't know, veering spin offs you know, going to the side with her because she's, she's quite fun too. So, yeah, I don't know. Three, I would imagine three and then see if it spins off. Will you be doing sort of live readings of those, like mini tour, reading the book out live and giving people like... Yes, I will. I'm going to Hastings, Literary Fest, Norfolk, Literary Fest, Chester, Literary Fest, doing re- and uh, one called Wigtown, which is up in Scotland in Dumfries. So I'm doing those readings from that book then. 
Um, but I'm also on tour in uh, September with Henry Normal uh, as a poet. Because in the 90s, I used to go on tour with Henry. We were performance poets. And I met up again with him recently. And he's, he's back on tour again and has new poetry books out. So he's encouraged me to join him again. And I've got a new poetry book coming out in September. Fantastic. Um, and I'll be, I'll be, we're doing a lot of gigs all over, mostly Southwest, I think now. Um, we're doing Taunton and can't remember all of them, but, but oh, I don't know, 10, 15 poetry readings. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be quite busy all over the autumn doing that. And it, again, rather like the five leaves left, I am concentrated on writing poetry for some time. I've occasionally penned the occasional bit. And Hen it was Henry said, well, why don't you go for a new collection? So I've, I, I did some work and gathered up all the stuff I've ever written and did quite a lot of edit and, you know, made it into a poetry volume. So it goes backwards from this year where the latest one was written it goes backwards in time, so it reads like a, almost like a memoir. And the first poem in the book was written in 1971, so it's like a life story in poems. The poetry book is going to be called Making Other Plans, um, as in the line from the John Lennon song, um, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. And where can people get that book when it comes out? Probably online. I go to, for both of those books, I would go to bookshop.org or to hive.co.uk, hive as in beehive, hive.co. And those are, I mean, you can get them on Amazon, but those two I like more because they support local bookshops. So you'd be buying it from basically, even though you're going online, you'd be buying it from your local bookshop. Fantastic. I'll put links to that in the description as well. Uh, Nigel, thanks for chatting today. It's been absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, brilliant chat. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.